From the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library, this is Stories from the Stacks. I'm Amherst Williams. And I'm Ben Spohn. Each episode, we sit down with one of our visiting researchers and talk to them about what they're finding in our collections. Alexi Garrett, and I'm a fourth-year PhD candidate in the History Department at the University of Virginia. And I'm at the Hagley this week on an exploratory research grant. So I leave tomorrow, but it's been a great week. Alexi told me about her work on women business owners in the early 19th century. The reason I'm here is because I'm interested um, in businesswomen of the early American Republic. So my dissertation is going to be looking at unmarried, elite, wealthy white women who owned, managed, ran, maybe even founded businesses because I'm interested in kind of the female face of industry um, in the early Republic. So, you know, when we usually think about industrial capitalists of this era, we think of men, right? Mm -hmm. But there's plenty of women who would either take over their husband's businesses as widows and continue to run them at a profit, um, or there are some women who never got married who would run businesses. And so what what the interesting thing about this widowhood, singledom um, part of the project is that legally during this time period, if women got married, all their property, all their business earnings would be subsumed under their husband's name. Now, in reality, plenty of husbands and wives ran separate business accounts, maybe did their own business. But legally, if creditors came after you, it's all under the husband's name, right? And you can't, and a married woman cannot sue or be sued or sign contracts. But an unmarried woman, so widowed or never married, could do all of the above right? She could legally act like a man. So I'm kind of interested in these unmarried women who are running businesses in, in the way that men legally could. And I'm actually interested in a gendered aspect of, of that business management. Are they doing things differently than men? Are they doing things the same? Either way, it's going to be a gendered argument. So that's a, a really brief overview of my project. Um, the first woman that I'm really interested in is a Virginia woman. Her name is Catherine Flood McCall. And she owned two nail-making and small smith shop enterprises in uh, early Republican Virginia, so on the edge of Richmond. And she inherited more than uh, 30 enslaved people from her father. And she invested that labor in these nail manufactories. And I have records of her managing these factories. So I think that's, that's one case I have for my dissertation. So the reason I'm at the Hagley is because I'm interested in the northern component of this type of woman. So we have Catherine and Virginia who has enslaved people. She's owning a nail manufactory. Then we have Rebecca Webb Panic Lukens, who is at the Hagley, her, her records are at the Hagley. And she was the owner and manager um, for years of what was first called the Brandywine Ironworks, which is now, which was later then called Lucan Steel Company. So she's a widow, she's running in an iron manufactory, way larger scale than Catherine and Virginia was, but she's not using enslaved people. So I'm interested in the different labor practices that women like this are using to run their businesses. I'm interested in how they're managing labor and I'm interested in their business choices. So. That's why I'm here at the Hagley. The main collections I'm looking at are three. There's the Charles Huston's papers, 
which is her son-in-law and what she has two son-in-laws who actually eventually really take over the whole company and then kind of bring it into the 20th century um, from then on so i'm looking at the charles huston papers i'm looking at the luke and steel company records and i'm looking at um, just some other records that are generally related to like the lucan's panic web families to place us that's in Coatesville, Pennsylvania. That's in Coatesville, Pennsylvania. That's right. So, so the Lucan Steel Company was in Coatesville, Pennsylvania. Um, it was originally called Brandywine because the Brandywine River. Um, yeah, and now Lucan Steel Company actually was very successful for a really long time and remained a Lucan Steel Company up until you know the mid twentieth century. But then I think was bought out finally. And if you Google them now, they're it's like some worldwide global steel manufacturer like has uh, bought them out. So I mean, they really were quite successful. But I'm I'm going back really to the really old roots of it, which is early 1800s. So Rebecca Webb Pennock Lukens, um, she <clears throat> married Dr. Charles Lukens in 1813. She had already inherited the ironworks from her father a few years before. So her husband, who was a doctor, quickly quit the doctor's business read up on the ironworks business and managed it for years until his death in 1825, at which time Rebecca took it over and ran it until 1847. So she actually ran this for over 20 years. It was um, kind of remarkable. And she ran it at a profit. And they made, the biggest thing is that they made boilerplates. And especially with the invention of the railroad, they really took off as a company. So maybe you could go into a little bit more about what you're what you're finding out? Yeah, sure. So yeah, I've been frantically taking photos of all these documents all week. And um, I'd like to maybe highlight just a couple of the documents I found. The, the reason I was really excited to come here was uh, you have an autobiography. Hagley has an autobiography of Rebecca Lukens. And I got, I was so excited and I got into the archives and it is a whopping 13 pages long. And it doesn't say anything about her time as a manager of this factory, which at first I was like, what? I can't believe that. But actually, the more I read this autobiography, the more it made sense to me. So this autobiography is written in you know, the late 19th century sometime. And she's reflecting back on you know, her childhood memories and uh, her childhood memories, as well as like her love with, with Dr. Charles Lukens, you know, their courtship. And when you're reading it, it actually makes sense that she wouldn't include her life as a manager because of gender expectations of, of the time period when it comes to memoirs, when it comes to autobiographies, when it comes to letter writing. There is um, th th this period in time, sentimental fiction, sentimental letter writing, autobiographies was in vogue. So women would write uh, in effusive flowery language on purpose to show off their femininity. Um, and that was supposed to be virtuous. And we're really talking about like elite white women. It's a virtuous um, feminine way of writing um, that uh, society expected of women of this stature to write about. And to write about managing and iron works would be very masculine. And that's why I think you do not see that in the autobiography. So here, I would just like to read one short paragraph in her autobiography. Again, this is 13 pages long, and I swear she spends like four pages on her courtship with Dr. Charles Lukens. And it 
is so flowerly. She's so in love with him. She she goes over all the first couple of meetings they had, the first time she lowered her bashful eye when she first met him, you know, just things like that. And I think this paragraph really kind of captures that sentimental fiction writing of the time. So this is on page 12. Um, and she's talking about uh, Dr. Charles Lukens, her smoothie husband. You know, there was a thrilling sound in his tone as he spoke, and such a purity of thought, such a grace of expression, that I felt almost as though I were listening to a being of another sphere. Time passed on unheeded. He culled the sweetest flowers of fancy for me and gave freely of the stores of his highly cultivated mind. At length, he spoke of his own feelings and declared how happy he had been since we had met. Tomorrow, my dear R., said he, I must bid adieu to you all. The active duties of my profession render it necessary and say, will I sometimes be remembered in thy thoughts or will the remembrance of something more interesting take me from thy memory? This is an example of how um, women, especially at this time, would write about love uh, in this kind of high, highly sentimental, sentimental way um, on purpose, because it shows elitism and it shows your status. And when you're talking about words like cultivated mind, that means that people have education, they have wealth, they have status. And she is one of those women. So these code words show up in her autobiography with that. I think it's so strange that she didn't talk, you know, at first I thought it was so strange that she didn't talk about um, her management of the ironworks in her autobiography. But at the same time, maybe that's not what readers are most interested in because the autobiography also just talks about her childhood and like her love for Dr. Lukens. Like that is what the autobiography is. And I wonder if maybe her community members in Coatesville well knew who she was, right? She was this famous, rich, wealthy manager of a very large iron manufacturing, right? they knew exactly who this like Iron Maiden was, right? So when you're reading this autobiography, I think they're more interested maybe in the childhood and uh, her love, I guess, for her husband. In 1847, Rebecca partners with um, someone named Abraham Gibbons uh, in order to, I think she's getting older and I don't think she wants to have full ownership of, of the ironworks anymore. So she partner, partners with Gibbons and you know we have the articles of co-partnership here and it's short and sweet. And what uh, stipulations are, are very interesting. So the firm shall now be called A. Gibbons, and, or a. Gibbons Jr. and Company, right? So his name gets to be on like the, the, the works now instead of her name. Instead of Lucan's, it's gonna be changed to A. Gibbons, right? So you think to yourself, well, oh, she must be giving up a lot to him if, if the whole name is, is being changed. But then you scroll down and it reads, she gets two thirds of the profits and he only gets one third. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it might seem by the name change that she's given up a lot to this Abraham Gibbons, but no. Alexi told me about another document from Hagley's collections. She used this document to compare Rebecca Lucan's childhood with another little girl from Coatesville. Unlike Rebecca's mother, this girl's mother was forced to sell her daughter into indentured service. This woman is indenturing her daughter. Her daughter is five years old, and she's indenturing her. And if you read at the back of this, it's this one little paragraph that says, My husband left me. I have so many children to take care of. 
I have to do this. And so she's indenturing out this little five-year-old to this, to this couple, Joseph Pettick and his wife. And it's to learn, it's so interesting how they phrase it, it's to learn um, house for free business. So it's to basically learn sewing and anything that housewives do at this time under Joseph's wife's tutelage. But then you read as well in, in this like contract for indenture that she'll be indentured for 12 years. And after the end of the 12 years, you know, she should be returned with good clothes. And that's kind of the, the standard for indentures. But then education-wise, she's only required as part of this contract to have like a year's worth of education out of the 12 years that she's supposed to be with them. And so I look at that document from the early 1800s and I'm trying to figure out how that's related to Rebecca, but when I think about Rebecca, in her autobiography, she had the best teachers since birth. She talks about going to school, having the best teachers. She loved her one uh, professor who taught her this, this, and that, you know, as like a schoolgirl. She has happy childhood memories of going to her cousin's houses and playing with them in the woods and just having basically leisure time, right, with her cousins having the best education, having major time, and then growing up, of course, to marry a smart doctor and then take over um, a business, which requires acumen for that, right? Or requires some sort of education, which she got as like a young girl and a teenager. So I just, in the same collection, you see one autobiography of this wealthy woman who had leisure time as a child, who writes about it and had a lot of education next to this poor little Hannah Rowe who's indentured at five years old to one of Rebecca's relatives and gets only one year of schooling in the 12 years she's, she's indentured. It's just a really stark class difference that you can see among white women. These are two white women, right? Little Hannah Rowe and then what was little Rebecca Lukens. Two stark differences in the same Coatesville area, probably the neighbors in some way, even though they're slightly different time periods, like still, they're a few decades away, but still you're able to see what opportunity buys you and it buys you leisure and education and wealth that, that Rebecca got that little Hannah didn't. That's in the same collection, which I think is really fun as a researcher to see that. For Rebecca Lukens, those are the ones that pop out to me. I'm still trying to frantically collect um, photos of her day books as well as her accounting records, um, which are huge fat books of names upon names saying like, I paid so-and-so for, you know, this much iron, da 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 da, -da. And it's just every day and every week, there's, it's basically an accounting book. So. I think what will be exciting about those when I eventually take a good look through them is just seeing who the, seeing who the community is, who's buying things from her ironworks, who is she selling to, at what rates, when is there a season to this work, right? Um, is she renting out the use of her of her ironworks or parts of them to other people for their profit? Interesting. It'll be interesting to see the names I think that show up and how often they show up just and where they're coming from to get a picture of her community and to see, uh, yeah, who who's doing business with her and are these business connections more than just business connections? Are they also neighborly connections? Are they also kinship connections? I've already seen kinship connections in them. I mean, you see Penix, Webbs, Lukens of, you know, any size and shape show up. So, 
it will be interesting to see, um, yeah, I guess how far out her tendrils go when it comes to the Coatesville area. To learn more about Hagley's grants and fellowships, search our collections, and listen to more stories from the stacks, visit hagley.org research. That's H-A-G-L-E-Y dot org. <laughs>